Dietz and Watson's been making meats and cheeses the right way since forever. What's that mean? It means never cutting corners, ever. It means cooking, not processing. It means our Virginia brand ham that's cooked to perfection, then twice baked to layer the flavors. It takes more time, but you can taste the difference. We come to work every day to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. Because if it's not right for us, it's not right for you. Dietz and Watson, it's a family thing since 1939. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're multitasking. But what if you could also be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average, and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. So multitask right now. Get your quote now at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates national average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Before we roll the audio on this PFT Live podcast, we want you to know that Mike Florio does an afternoon podcast. Why? To catch all the late-breaking news and developing stories in the NFL, of course. So you got to subscribe to PFT PM as well. Go to Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Art19, or Google Play. Search PFT PM and subscribe. Boom. Done. Thanks for the support. Now, stats. Another hour of the PFT Live podcast. It's Friday, it's PFT Live, and it is anything but an ordinary day in the offseason. Not just because the scouting combine is coming. Oh no, oh no. Yesterday, the pedal was placed to the metal as it relates to the NFL's effort to get a new CBA in place. Now, part of the problem for the league and the union, although... Right now, things are set up pretty nicely for the league, the way they've handled this. More on that in a second. But so much has been happening behind the scenes for months. The parties have been negotiating for months. And when the stories started to emerge several weeks ago that the players would be getting together to have discussions about a CBA premised on a 17-game season... The media didn't do a good enough job of explaining what actually had gotten things to that point. And I'm not trying to be critical here of my colleagues in the media, but I was banging the drum to make sure people understood exactly what was going on. You don't just grab a proposal from the league and say, hey, we're going to initiate this mechanism of getting an 11-member executive committee and 32 player reps, and then we're going to have conference calls with all the players, one division at a time, for an offer that the people at the very top of the union don't believe is acceptable. See, what happened for 10 months was the NFL and the NFLPA negotiating teams worked together to craft the terms of a deal that then could be presented to their clients. And one of the stories I posted on Super Bowl Sunday to make sure people understood exactly what was going on 
the proposal that was being bandied about to the players, the proposal that was the subject of the meeting, remember the one that happened Thursday of Super Bowl week, where there was pushback from the board of player reps, and this thing hasn't been as simple for the very top of the NFLPA to sell. The NFL is under the impression we got a deal. No different than when two lawyers get together to hash out the settlement of a civil lawsuit. Okay, they come up with a deal that is acceptable to them, and then they sell the deal to their clients. But the understanding is that if the lawyers are worth their salt, the easy part is selling it to the client. Because ultimately, the client defers to the wisdom and the knowledge of the person who negotiates the deal because that's why they've hired the person to negotiate the best deal and to know when it's the best deal not just to say well i don't really like this deal but you know what the hell we'll convene meetings and have guys fly all over the place and you know just for every offer you're going to make that's one of the flaws i've noticed in the way this has been presented to the public and i think if i'm the nfl the nflpa my position is, well, the media never really understood what was going on and never explained it. Now, the problem is the league and the union never bothered to grab the media by the collar and say, can you please explain that this isn't just the first offer that's been made by the league, that this is something that's been going on for a while? And that brings me to yesterday, because now that the NFL has issued a statement, which really does paint the union into a corner, there are people out there who are saying, well, this is the first offer. You don't accept the first offer. It's not the first offer. It's not the first offer. You don't take the first offer to an 11-member executive committee, 32 members of the board of player representatives, and say, what do you think of this? You're never going to get anything done if every single offer results in the initiation of a convoluted process just to find out whether or not the executive committee and the board of player reps happen to say, yeah, that's good enough for us. That's not how it works. You're never going to get anything done if every single offer that's made ends up being subjected to that. So, where we are in this monumental process that came out of nowhere yesterday, the league has issued that statement that makes it clear that the deal that has been negotiated is fine by us. And I think that the league had hoped that it wouldn't have to do this. And... I wouldn't be surprised if what happened yesterday was aimed at making it easier for the union leadership at the very top to explain to executive committee members who may not completely understand it, board of player reps who may not understand it, individual players who may not understand it, that they have negotiated a deal that Demora Smith, the executive director of the NFLPA, believes is a deal that should be accepted. Here's the statement from the league. Following more than 10 months of intensive and thorough negotiations, the NFL players and clubs have jointly developed a comprehensive set of new and revised terms that will transform the future of the game, provide for players past, present, and future, both on and off the field, and ensure that the NFL's second century is even better and more exciting for the fans. The membership, the NFL owners, they call themselves the membership, I don't know why, voted today to accept the negotiated terms on the principal elements of a new collective bargaining agreement. The Players Association would also need to approve the same terms for there to be a new agreement. In other words, and I'm not quoting from the statement at this point, the league has made it known. We're fine with this, and now it's up to the union. And if we don't get a deal done... It's the union's fault, 
not ours. Since the clubs and the players need to have a system in place and know the rules that they will operate under by next week, the membership also approved moving forward under the final year of the 2011 CBA if the players decide not to approve the negotiated terms. Translation. Clock is ticking. Midnight is coming. And if the NFLPA does not accept this now, we're not going to get a new CBA in place before the start of the new league year. And we will accept and honor the terms of the final year of the existing CBA. And even though they don't say it, the message is this. There's not going to be any further negotiation until next year. More on that coming over the course of this hour of the program. For now, details about what the league has offered and what NFLPA leadership at the very top has deemed good enough to take to its client. 17 games, obviously. That is the core of this deal. The NFL wants to have the 17 games and that's something that they're not going to let go. Period. There is still not specificity as to when 17 games would begin. Would it be 2021? That's when the league wants it. The players want it 2023. It feels like it's moving toward 2022. But that's obviously the centerpiece of this. Now, what do the players get? Well, right away, minimums go up by $90,000. Every player on a minimum salary is getting $90,000 more this year. That's a hell of a way to buy their vote. It it may may work if it ever gets to a rank-and-file vote. More on that coming up later as well. We've previously reported that the NFL will dramatically, dramatically reduce the penalties for marijuana use under the substance abuse policy. They're not getting rid of it, but they're gutting it. The only thing I don't like is that the new two-week window that they're going to use for all annual testing. So you only have to be clean for that two weeks. That two week window starts at the opening of training camp, which will infringe upon the ability of players who in past years may have already had their annual test before that six week window after the off season program where smoke them. If you got them, enjoy the month of July. Now you got to worry about having enough THC in your body that you test positive, but they're going to move the minimum from 35 nanograms to 150. And I've consulted with noted marijuana expert, Chris Sims. Apparently it's not going to be all that hard to get under 150. And he would know, he would know. Also, we reported on the fifth year options, big deal here. Now, the, and, and see, we know these terms because the NFLPA has put together a sheet that's been given to all players and agents, and the NFLPA just eventually posted the thing online because there was no way they were going to keep it from being leaked. Fifth-year option. Currently, it's guaranteed for injury when it's exercised. Now it's going to be fully guaranteed. And they make vague reference to what we reported over the weekend that if you make the Pro Bowl two of your first three years, your fifth-year option becomes the franchise tag value and it's not tied into where you were drafted 
because if you're out of the top 10, your fifth year option plummets in comparison to what it would have been. You get the franchise tag for year five. That's a significant bump and it gives you significant leverage as you negotiate your second contract. The one thing I really don't like is how they're going to handle extra pay for a 17th game for the players who are under contract in the years that 17 games happen. Because you have guys who have contracts they've already signed that extend beyond 2021. And the NFL leaked to one of its in-house reporters yesterday the detail that if you are under contract in a year when there's 17 games, you get an extra game check with a limit. It's capped at $250,000. So if you're making more than four or five million a year, you're going to get less for that extra game than you get for every other game, which is horribly unfair. Why would you cap it? Just give the guy an extra game check. See, we've been saying all along that if players play an extra game, it's worth more than one more game check. Now, that should reflect in the formula that they use to take care of the guys who have signed contracts that go beyond the current year. And as some of these contracts have been signed in recent months, as we've all known these negotiations were happening, I was thinking, why in the hell are these guys doing this? Why are you doing this? We have no idea what's going to happen with a new CBA. We have no idea what the salary cap's going to do, but it's likely going to go up if the players agree to 17 games. We have no idea when 17 games are going to begin. Why are you locking in to these salaries, these set salaries all these years into the future with so much uncertainty? There would be four more players per roster. There would be train. Look, there's a lot of stuff that the owners will agree to that doesn't cost them any money. Restrictions and reductions to training camp, which I'm sure the coaches will love. I've heard the coaches aren't happy because they're not getting any extra pay for contracts that extend into the years that are covered by potentially 17 games. And one last point that has not been fully fleshed out, but the new CBA would result in most disciplinary decisions being delegated from the commissioner to a neutral decision maker. Now, most decisions already are. That was one of the things that happened the last time around. For drug suspensions, PED suspensions, a lot of the decision making is done now by a three-person arbitration panel. The personal conduct policy is one that the players for a long time have wanted to shift to a neutral arbitrator for a final decision. It's unclear how much authority the commissioner is going to retain. I could see him retaining things along the lines of deflate gate, integrity of the game type stuff, where we don't want anyone else telling us our business. This one's too big. This one's too important. This one is too central to our existence for the commissioner not to handle it. So those are the highlights of the CBA that the ownership has accepted. Now the question is, will the players who are convening a meeting of the Board of Player Reps today by conference call, will they accept it? What happens if they don't? What happens if they say, no thank you? That is the question that we will take up next, right here on Pro Football Talk Live. So where does it go from here? As I've mentioned, the upper leadership of the NFLPA believes that this deal should be accepted. They want to get this done. Why do they want to get this done? 
because the League and the Union wants to pivot to TV negotiations. And the idea is that if they can get locked into new TV deals now, before the presidential election takes a bite out of the ratings, before the economy potentially downturns and affects budgets in a negative way, they're going to get more money. They're going to lock into better deals. And they need labor peace to do it. And the concern is that if the players eventually are going to cry uncle and take a 17-game CBA in August of 2021, just as they are on the brink of losing real money, then do it now. Do it now, because if the TV deals don't get done now, if the TV deals end up being worth less than the NFL thinks they will be, that difference is coming out of the pockets of the players in the form of the best offer that's available on the brink of a lockout actually causing the players to lose money. And I'm saying all this because there are some influential voices out there that are suggesting they don't like this proposed CBA. J.J. Watt taking a break from his honeymoon to say hard no on that proposed CBA. And Richard Sherman, who's a member of the executive committee, and I've been under the impression the executive committee is okay with this. They've been involved in negotiations. Ten months to get to the point where they have a deal that they're taking back to player leadership. How is the executive committee not behind this? How is Richard Sherman not behind this? they got a problem at the union if Richard Sherman is going to be speaking out publicly. He retweeted an item from Darren Ravel last night. Look, I don't know how much Darren Ravel knows or doesn't know about labor law. He's pontificating about this deal, though. I've been covering sports labor for 20 years. This deal the NFL owners are putting forth might be the worst deal, with the exception of the deal the NHL players accepted in 2005 after a year off. There's no way the NFLPA says yes to this. Darren, here's the problem with your tweet. You're using as an example the deal that the NHL players took after a year off They took a bad deal because they were going to take any deal after missing a year of hockey. That's what happens in sports. And I'm going to talk about this in the next segment. I'm not sure a union approach is the best approach for professional sports leagues. But again, more on that coming up in about 10 minutes. For now, here are the options for the players. Take it or don't take it, right? Take it now or let it play out. And if you don't take it now... The NFL statement has made it clear, and who knows whether it's a threat or a promise, or maybe a little of both. They don't take the deal now. We're going to proceed under the rules of the last year of the 2011 CBA, which means no new deal until next year. So next year rolls around, the contract expires. What does the league do? 2011, the league locked out the players until the players cried uncle in August as they continued negotiations, and the union decertified or disclaimed interest is the more accurate legal term where the union shuts down goes out of existence and then sues the league for antitrust for the rules that the league tries to put in place because the argument is 32 independent businesses can't have these rules for minimum salaries franchise tag the draft anything that they do collectively is a violation of the antitrust rules because they are 32 independent businesses this all goes back to the American Needle case that was decided by the U.S. Supreme Court that was a big deal at the time. And most people are like, well, who cares? Well, this is why. Because it's not one single entity. It's 32 separate businesses, and that's the leverage the players have. But ultimately, the players are going to want to play football and get paid to play football. So the lockout would end, most likely, right before the preseason would begin. 
But there's another thing that the league can do. The league can basically dare the players to strike. What the league can do under federal labor law, instead of locking out the players, they negotiate to impasse. And once they are at impasse, the league can implement its last best offer and say, these are the rules. Show up and work under these rules or don't. And if you want to go on strike, go on strike. Be our guest. Then what? If you dare the players to strike, are they going to strike? Have things changed since 1987? Players go on strike. What happens? There are plenty of other NFL quality players out there who, look, I don't know. I don't want to say they're NFL quality, but they are good enough to put on a uniform and go out and play football, and we won't really know the difference. Think of how many college football players are generated every year out of the, how many now? 150 highest level college programs. And then you have what you got FBS, FCS, you got this, you got that, you got all these divisions. They'll, they did it. Replacement players. They'll bring in scabs. And with each passing week, the resolve of the regular players will crumble and they'll cross the picket line and the strike will end. So the concern is, I believe, that that's what the league will do, dare the players to strike by implementing the last best offer. And by next year, the last best offer may not be as good as this offer. By next year, guys like Jerry Jones may win and say, well, you know, if we're going to impose this offer, let's go ahead and and impose 18 games. They ain't going to strike for that. We'll play 18. We'll do whatever we want. And that leads me to the next topic. Does the union system work for the National Football League, or is there a different way for them to get a better deal? We're going to ponder that next right here on PFT Live. Thirty-four minutes after the hour, Friday edition of Pro Football Talk Live. This is something that came to me yesterday while Chris Sims and I were doing PFTOT, where we just kind of talk about whatever we want to talk about that we either didn't get to during PFT Live or didn't really have the occasion to stumble across because the show is structured. We've got breaks. We've got things we have to get to, especially on the simulcast. The simulcast is more produced than a normal radio show would be because of a variety of reasons, but it's a TV show and a radio show. Other simulcasts are just radio show on TV. We, over the final two hours of the program, become a combined TV and radio show, and it's harder to just catch a concept and go with it. And the concept that I caught and went with yesterday, and I want to talk about some more, is this. If at the end of the day, and by saying this, I am not challenging the manhood of the players. I am reflecting what I think is the reality of the situation, as we've seen in the 1987 strike and more recently in the 2011 lockout. Football players want to play football and they want to get paid for it, and they don't want to not play and not get paid. And football players, unlike typical union employees who aren't making multiple hundred thousand dollars per year and thus have a more restricted and reasonable financial burden for their day-to-day lives, 
it's not as jarring if you take a strike or if you absorb a lockout if you're working at the local garment factory or any other unionized shop. We're not talking about somebody who's due to make 500000 $2.5 million, $17 million. We're not talking about that kind of money disappearing. And we're also talking about the difference between jobs that people hate, the drudgery of an assembly line, if they still even have assembly lines, mining coal, making steel, if they still mine coal or make steel, or playing football in front of thousands of people, broadcast sea to shining sea and around the globe. You want to play. That's why you're there. You love it, and you get paid good money for it. Are you really going to say, nah, I'm going to give up that $17.5 million I'm due to make this year to make a broader point? Because you know what? I should be making $18 million, not seventeen point five. And under the terms of this new labor deal, that's what I'll make. It's a harder sell. And we've seen it. And they can huff and puff all they want now. But you better not huff and puff until you're ready to get your house blown down. And that's what caused me to think yesterday of a very important question. And I don't know the answer to it. And this is not an anti-union take. I'm trying to figure out how to get the best deal for the players. And it's funny. I've got some people on Twitter. Oh, you're carrying water for the league. I invite you to call 345 Park Avenue and ask them if you think I carry their water. And when they're done laughing, when they aren't able to hold their water due to the fit of hysteria that you've induced by suggesting that I carry their water, they'll tell you that uh, if I'm carrying their water, I am far from Gunga Din. And I've spilled it everywhere. So, I haven't thought of Gunga Den in a long time. So, here's the idea that I've just been bandying around. Because we've seen what happened in 87 after the failed strike and during the lockout in 2011. The NFLPA has begun to realize that there is a mechanism under the law that they have. Thanks to the fact that these 32 franchises are independent businesses. See, the XFL, MLS, AAF, new sports leagues realize it's far better to be one integrated entity because then you don't get yourself into antitrust situations. So, let's play this out. And I don't know how this works for the fans. I don't know how it works for the owners. I don't know how it works for the media. But I got a feeling it ends up working pretty well for the players if they really do this and stick to it. CBA expires next year, right? They don't want to do a deal. Richard Sherman and company have their conference call today, and the end result is stick it up your rear end sideways. We're not taking it. CBA expires next year. How about at that point? The union just goes away. And they can still have a trade association or something where they pay dues and there can still be an NFLPA. It's just not a union. That's what they did in 2011. And instead of having a union contract, instead of engaging in collective bargaining, why not consider being 
non-union employees who are working for 32 different businesses and then attacking in court, as you will have the right to do, any and all efforts by those 32 businesses to have collective rules. Franchise tag, nope, antitrust violation. Clear antitrust violation. Salary cap, nope, clear antitrust violation. 32 businesses coming together to fix wages, maximum wages per team. Nope, antitrust violation. Winner. I don't care how conservative the judiciary has swung in recent years, and that is not a political observation. That is a statement of fact. It is a clear antitrust violation. You have 32 different businesses, and you apply any type of rules regarding pay, regarding migration from one of those businesses to another, you've got an antitrust violation. And the ultimate antitrust violation, wait for it. Are you sitting down? You should be sitting down. Please sit down. The ultimate antitrust violation is the draft. This gets back to a point that I make all the time. Un-American. 32 different businesses coming together and determining how the workforce of those businesses is going to be constructed by calling dibs on incoming employees and giving them no say over where they want to work and what they want to get paid and where they're going to live and every other factor that goes into the decision-making process of anyone who has marketable skills. It would be chaos. But from that chaos, maybe you get a better deal. Maybe you end up with a better deal. So what you do, what you do, and you can have your cake and eat it too. That's what happened from 87 through 92-ish. The Reggie White antitrust lawsuit was filed. There was no union. The players were operating under the unilaterally imposed rule and terms and conditions that were put in place when the CBA expired and they couldn't reach an agreement. Fine. We're going to continue to get paid. We're going to continue to play. Meanwhile, we are going to attack everything you do as an antitrust violation. And the Reggie White antitrust lawsuit played out before American Needle. This is why American Needle is so important. I remember when American Needle first hit my radar screen. It's like, why do I care about this? Why am I monitoring this? Why am I reading this opinion? And then the light bulb finally went off. Holy crap. In the U.S. Supreme Court case called American Needle, the NFL was found to be not one business, but 32 different businesses. And I think the best hope for the NFL, if the players would pull the pin on this grenade, would be to try to get the Supreme Court to change its mind, which is not the easiest thing to do because of concepts like binding precedent or Latin for those of you out there looking for a little CLE credit, but you know this from the first day of law school, they call it stare decisis, S-T-A-R-E, not S-T-A-R-R-Y, as I learned the hard way, first day of law school. So, I'm intrigued by this, I'm, in fa I'm fascinated by it, because it is a way for the players to have their cake and eat it too, right? We're going to continue to play, we're going to continue to get paid, and we're going to continue to get paid very well to play a game that we want to play. 
Meanwhile, we are going to try to jam it. I got to quit with those similes. We're going to try to beat you over the head with your rules. And we're going to prove that all of these rules, in the absence of a union, you're going to want a union, NFL. You are going to be begging for a union by the time we're done with you. Let Jeffrey Kessler loose with all and every possible antitrust theory, and the NFL as we know it will collapse. Now, I'm not saying that the NFL will die. I'm just saying that the current structure will collapse, and it will be replaced with something else, unless the owners beg the players to reform the union and the players secure better terms out of it. That's what happened in 93 with true free agency. That was the hammer. The antitrust litigation was the hammer to get something that the owners were hell-bent on never giving to the players. And I, I think there's a lesson there. The best deal that the players have ever gotten from the league came not when they were a union, but when they shut the union down and sued for antitrust because the antitrust violations are hiding in plain sight. Everything, the waiver rules, the minimum salaries, the salary cap, everything. Because what you know what? It should be no different than any other business. You've got 32 businesses and they compete on the field and they compete off the field. And the problem is if you play it out, yeah, you do get yourself into a situation where Jerry Jones buys all the best players. And the Cincinnati Bengals trot out whatever guys they find hanging around at the bus station because they're paying minimum wage. Because that's all you're limited by at that point is the minimum wage rules. I don't know what minimum wage is right now. And I don't know that the Bengals would be quite so cheap as to try to pay someone minimum wage. But you know what? Look at what the XFL's paying these guys. They're playing. Look at what the AF was paying. They're playing. That's the downside of going non-union. You lose the protection of the minimum salary. But at the same time, if you want to compete with the other 31 teams, you're going to have to be, pay a competitive wage or you're going to be crap. But man, I'm telling you, if the players don't like this proposal and they want something better, the way to do it isn't to try to strike because that won't work. Isn't to try to stare down the NFL for a lockout or shut down for the whole season. You keep going forward. You keep getting paid. You keep playing football. You shut down the union and you sue the league for everything you can under every possible theory of antitrust. All right. Speaking of the Bengals, who will have 53 guys they find at the bus station who will play for minimum wage if it comes down to a full and complete non-union setting... Zach Taylor, head coach, sticking up for the team that pays him to coach it. What a shock. He's going to defend the team that has him under salary, but we'll consider what he had to say, and I'll give you some more thoughts on what I think of where the Bengals are and where they need to go next, right here on Pro Football Talk Live. There's been plenty of criticism of the Cincinnati Bengals in recent weeks, all emanating from the question of whether or not LSU quarterback Joe Burrow will be making a power play. Zach Taylor appearing on the Bengals Beat podcast head coach of the team, said this. It's not something you pay attention to. You can't always avoid things that are said, but you don't need to pay attention to it. They don't know what's going on in our building and the things that we're doing to improve it. So it's a lot of talk right now, and that's kind of what happens in the offseason. You have to endure it, 
and we're just going to continue to try and make the improvements we can make. Here's the thing. Here's the thing. They were the worst team in the league last year. They earned the number one overall pick for the first time since 2003. And you can recite whatever statistics you want. I mean, hell, the Bengals have been to two Super Bowls. There are some teams that have not been to a Super Bowl, like the other team in Ohio. But the question is, as of right now, where are they? As of right now, is their ownership committed to winning? That's how this all started. Remember, Joe Burrow says in January, I'll play for whoever wants to pay me to play. Then Carson Palmer, number one overall pick in 2003 of the Bengals, says they aren't committed to winning Super Bowls. Then Joe Burrow hires Jordan Palmer, Carson's younger brother. Then Joe Burrow tells Dan Patrick, well, you want to be the number one overall pick, but you also want to play for a team that's committed to winning Super Bowls. It really wasn't a complicated chain of logic, which qualifies me to figure it out. That's how we got here. And I think one of the reasons why I kept talking about it is you've got these Bengals fans, and I didn't know you were out there, first of all. Like, I didn't realize that the Kraken was going to be unleashed over something like this. I mean, that Kraken has slept through a lot of crap over the last several years. Now, all of a sudden, the Bengals fans are united against guys like Carson Palmer, me, Dan Patrick, whoever else would dare say something about a team that can't get out of its own way, led by a guy who is less concerned about winning than he is about making the most money he possibly can. And as I've said multiple times over the past few weeks, I didn't realize that was a hot take. The notion that the Bengals aren't good and their owner isn't trying to win because he's just trying to turn a profit. That's kind of the way it's been. There was a time when they didn't have scouts. You realize that? Do you remember that? Some of you may remember this. They didn't have scouts. So when the season ended, the assistant coaches were pressed into duty as scouts. And they were woefully behind all the other teams. And that's why they used to draft guys who fell into later rounds due to character issues. It wasn't because Mike Brown had an affinity for giving these wayward souls an opportunity to reclaim their lives. It was, well, we got to make a pick now in round five. Who are we going to take? Well, there's this guy that everyone else had as a first-round prospect, but he's still on the board. Well, we may as well take him because we don't know who else to take. That's how they ended up with so many guys like that. And then after Marvin Lewis got there and started to have some success and was able to flex his muscles a little bit, they started to have scouts. That's an example of where this team is in comparison to other teams. That's what Carson Palmer's talking about. That's what Joe Burrow is hesitant about. That's why people are saying what they're saying. Right? I understand the Bengals went to the playoffs five straight years. I credit them for that. They should have kept Marvin Lewis. I think Marvin Lewis did the absolute best he could with the fact that he essentially had one hand tied behind his back because his owner didn't want to spend money like other teams spend money. They still have to spend some. There's a salary minimum, but that doesn't mean they're blowing out the curve here to get the best possible players and trying to win Super Bowls. It's that simple. We've talked a lot about Joe Burrow. We haven't talked much about Tua Tagovailoa. He said something recently on NFL Network that surprised me because usually these guys keep their cards very close to the vest about who they want to play for. And Tua was going on and on about the Cowboys and how his dad's a big Cowboys fan. And he, we, we, we were able to, to have his dad cross paths with Emmett Smith at the set the day that Tua was with us. And his dad was real happy about that. And Tua admitted 
We've looked at teams. We've talked about teams. We've talked to teams. Somebody might trade up and you could possibly drop or you could go higher. We've talked about all those scenarios. If you're saying to me, if I can choose what team I want to play for, as far as my favorite team growing up, I would tell you the Cowboys. Now, look, the, the, the Cowboys uh, are going to have their starting job most likely, you know, in the hands of Dak Prescott for years to come. And, and Tua didn't rule out the possibility of joining the Cowboys as his backup. I'm not trying to bump him. I'll learn under him. I'd handle it the way that the coaches there want to handle it. Honestly, I just want to be able to play again. I wouldn't mind learning under whatever guy the starter is. Just give me a whole year to rest up and then go back out and compete. Is Tua under some impression that the Cowboys are thinking about, like, tagging Dak Prescott for a year and letting him go? Does he know something the rest of us don't? I'm suddenly very intrigued by this. Maybe it will come up again over the course of the next two hours. Who knows? But I know this. Big Cat is ready to roll. We're going to talk about the CBA situation, the extra teams in the playoffs, and everything else that's happened this week with Big Cat over the next two hours. We'll be right back. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.